What's up, Transit Church? Good to see you. Happy Sunday to everybody. Grab your Bibles. Turn to Exodus. If you're with us for the first time, we've, uh, we are in a series uh, surveying the book of Exodus, and we are narrowing that down to the theme of redemption. So that's what we're about this morning. We're going to be in uh, Exodus 3 and 4. So we've got quite a little stretch of scripture to, to work through today as we look at this idea of redemption through the eyes uh, today of, of Moses. Uh, one caveat as you're turning your Bibles, you know, we gather on Sundays to, to immerse ourselves in worship. Uh, God deserves it. And to, you know, to, to listen and both be attentive to the word. But if you were outside 15 minutes ago, you would have thought that the, the firemen and Santa Claus, you know, it's like Santa's here. The firemen, it was a beautiful sight. All the kids that were just walking up and the firemen that were there, pretty cool. Check out our Facebook page. I posted a picture of it, uh, of all the kids looking at the firemen who were giving us some of their water for our baptism after service. All right, we're not going to read the verses out loud together today because we've got a lot of them, two whole chapters worth of verses. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll get going. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for your word. Uh, we pray that it would uh, nourish us, that it would sustain us, God, that it would challenge us, that we would hear uh, good news in it, and that uh, ultimately you would change us. Uh, Lord, change is a, uh, a hard thing. It, it doesn't come easy. And, uh, and Lord, we pray that as we immerse ourselves in Scripture today and see one to whom you have focused change in the midst of the wilderness, God, that we would see ourselves in his story, the story of, of Moses, and, uh, and that we would be challenged in the ways that Moses Will be today. God, we pray for the churches that are gathering uh, like us in our community. Pray that uh, that you would uh, give them the freedom of worship that they need. God, that they would you would open ears to hear of uh, the truths of your word. God, that your gospel will be preached by uh, men like me standing in pulpits. And God, that you change your people, that we might be uh, a people called to yourself that would declare your name to our community and beyond. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to start really in the latter half of chapter 2, go all the way through chapter 4 today. So keep your Bibles, keep your Bibles nearby because uh, you're going to need them. Um, let me uh, uh, sort of catch us up to where we are. If you are here for the first time, this little review might help you out a little bit. We are uh, surveying Exodus. In particular, we're right in the midst of the story of you know, how Moses got called and, and to, to do everything that God would have him do. And where we are in the story is Moses has identified with the plight of his people, the, the Hebrew people. He, re he realizes, you know, I am one of them. And in an effort to do something about the suffering of the Israelites in slavery in Egypt, he decides to take matters into his own hands and in his own strength. And what he does ends up ending in an epic failure. Moses kills a man. He kills an Egyptian. And... Uh, it was found out, it was told, Pharaoh heard about it, and then what we find is Moses flees. He flees uh, from what he thinks is going to be uh, trouble that comes his way, persecution perhaps, and he flees all the way to, to the wilderness of, of Midian. And in the wilderness, God is really going to begin to, to do some, th some things in Moses', Moses life. God's going to begin to not just change him, but mold him into the person that God needs him to be, to be the redeemer of all of Egypt, to get them out of slavery and into the promised land. One of the things that Nick said last week in his sermon, looking at the latter half of chapter two, kind of stands out again for us today. God didn't bring Moses into the wilderness to, to kill him. Although Moses would endure a lot of suffering in the wilderness and his life would really be different. God didn't bring him there to, to end his life. God actually brought Moses to the wilderness to, to give him life. That's, that's the theme of our text, and that really is the thing that God would do in your life as well when he brings suffering or exacts a change in you that feels like, you know what, this doesn't feel too good. Uh, in case you don't know, the wilderness can be a solitary place. It can be lonely. The wilderness can be a hard place in context to our text. The wilderness is a desert. This is the desert of Midian. But here's the thing I think about the wilderness, and I see this really in Moses' life at this point. The wilderness can be a, a sacred place. There's something sacred about this place that God leads Moses into. It's kind of a spiritual battlefield. Moses isn't battling an enemy, so to speak, except the enemy of himself and perhaps uh, 
battling a little bit with God. But many of you have been to these places like that. Think of the Civil War battlefields that are scattered throughout most of the eastern part of the United States. You go to these battlefields and just standing on the ground, it doesn't have to be a statue, it doesn't have to be a placard, you can just stand on the ground and see pickets all around those grounds that we've preserved as national parks now, and you just feel the solemnity of, of the event that happened perhaps hundreds of years ago. You are immediately immersed to, to think emotionally about the men that gave their lives and sacrificed perhaps themselves for a cause that they thought was greater than themselves. I've never been to Normandy, but I know a lot of people who have. There's perhaps some of you that have been there, and people that have been you know, just to Normandy and, and seen uh, the immensity of what took place there uh, have that same kind of perspective, the emotionalism of, of being there. And if you haven't been to Normandy, at least you've seen the movie, right? Saving Private Ryan. What strikes me about Saving Private Ryan, you got that first scene, Tom Hanks' uh, character has his, 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 uh, his ranger team, his ranger platoon, and they are on Delta One, which is one of the sectors on the beaches of Normandy. And of course, they're trying to get onto the, the, the landing and uh, defeat the enemy there. But I think what is readily uh, apparent about Normandy and places like that is just the hundreds and the thousands of people who risked their lives and eventually gave their lives uh, for the cause. And even in watching the movie, in those moments, you feel like, man, this was a sacred place. In many ways, the wilderness is that place. And so the wilderness is sacred. And so the wilderness of your life, but in, in context, the wilderness of Moses' life isn't necessarily this bad place of suffering. For sure, it is this God-ordained furnace that shapes us into who God wants us to be. But if we review it right, we'll know that God has aims for us there. In the case of Moses, God aims for three things. And I need you to remember these because I'm going to say this about 100 times in my text. Here's what God is trying to do with Moses in the wilderness. He's aiming to teach him humility, dependence, and obedience. Say these out loud with me. Humility, dependence, and obedience. I think that's, that's what journey, uh, anyone's journey in the wilderness is going to be like. That's what God wants us to find. That's what he's trying to do in us. And when I look back on just my few years on earth, I can, I mean, I can scratch out several seasons, perhaps even years, where my life felt like I was in a wilderness and that God was trying to teach me some things. I didn't grow up as a Christian. I did grow up going to church, as many do in the South, particularly in African-American families. I think my first wilderness that I really knew, I was like, like, this is awful, was when I was at West Point. If you go to a service academy, probably any college is like this, but particularly at West Point, what I experienced was just, I experienced a humiliation, firstly, of a, a kid who thought he was superlative in everything. I was a salutatorian of my class. I, was, I made all A's. I was the captain of the high school team. I had a job, made my own money. I mean, I did a lot of things that my parents, you know, put in my head that I was a, I was a pretty good kid. And then I get to West Point, and I mean, all that just unraveled. I can't even tell you how much it unraveled. Uh, West Point, uh, as many of the service academies will do, um, it will test you academically. It will test you physically. It will test you uh, militarily. I was good on the physical and military perspective. I, I could hang there. That academics, man, after th about three weeks, I was on my own. And I was like scrapping. I was trying to get uphill the whole way through. Uh, and God used that. He used that academic lack, so to speak, in me. Probably not lack, just I didn't know how to study. And I had to learn that of all places at West Point. But God used that to bring me into a wilderness where I realized, you know, I'm not as superlative as I thought I was, and I needed help. I needed, I needed dependence on a few people, uh, but I also needed depends on God. And he brought me to faith. So I came to faith in the midst of a wilderness at West Point. I could talk about a lot of different wilderness at West Point. But then I became a lieutenant. I graduated by the hair of my chinny-chin-chin. Yeah, yeah, they don't, I mean, y'all don't care that I graduated by the hair of my chinny-chin-chin, right? I, I became an officer in the United States Army. We only command a battalion in the United States Army, too. It's pretty cool. Um, so in my lieutenant days, I went to the 101st Airborne Division, one of the best divisions in the Army. And uh, uh, I loved the division. I loved Fort Campbell and the surrounding area. I hated my boss. It was another wilderness because my boss was a micromanager and he was a bully. And my boss decided that he was going to be successful. And his success was going to be 
was going to come on the backs of all of us who were working for him. And so every day was a chore. It was just it was just hard stuff of not living up to this man's ex expectations because he just wanted to be the best battery commander on the post. And I will tell you, he did. He became that. But he became that because he bullied and micromanaged those people who were working around him. And then, of course, if you really want to experience a wilderness, get deployed to Desert Storm, Desert Shield, right? So that's what happened. I could go on. I could tell you about, um, you know, just... Seasons of dryness in our in our marriage. I can tell you about you know having kids and the difficulty of that. All of us have these seasons, so we feel like we are in a wilderness. But if you look really hard, those are the moments where God is attempting to change you. He is attempting to put in you humility towards Himself, dependence in Him, and obedience. When it comes to change, I think the issue with Moses wasn't necessarily his weakness; it was his strength. That was where Moses failed. And that's what Nick was alluding to last week. Moses, after identifying with the suffering of the Hebrew, uh, Hebrews, figures out that he's in a position to do something, and he wants to do it. And that's a good thing. But the bad thing is that he went about it the wrong way. He tried to initiate God's deliverance in his own strength, and that ends up in failure. And that brings us to our text. And so as we sort of end chapter 2, go into chapter 3 and chapter 4, Moses is not 40 years, any, 40 years old anymore. He's 80. He spent 40 years shepherding sheep in the desert. That's where God has him. And God has him in this, because God has him in this position, I mean, he's broken down a bit. Can you imagine going from uh, an adopted son, a prince of Egypt, to being a shepherd out in the wilderness? But that's his lot in life. And so that's what happens to Moses. But I think as we're starting to look at the text this morning, one of the things that we notice is God isn't only working in the life of Moses. He's also working in the life of the, the people of Israel. Look at verse 23 at the end of chapter 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. The cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard the groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew and so in this wilderness journey, uh, I think we see something here happening with Israel that hasn't happened in a long time, perhaps maybe never. At least it hasn't happened since 400 years ago when Jacob was still sort of overseeing his family. And that's they prayed. Okay, that's, this is what this verse is telling us to do. It got so bad for Israel that they finally decided, you know what, we're going to cry out to God. And in verse 24 tells us that as they cried out to God, what did God do? He, he heard them, all right? He saw their plight. He heard them, and God decided to, to act. And I think that's a, a, an upfront lesson for us. You know, a lot of times uh, life presses us. We find that we uh, happen upon trouble. Uh, maybe you even get enslaved to something, something that, snare, uh, that becomes a snare in your life, some kind of bondage. And instead of, like Moses, doing it, trying to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps in our own strength, trying to man up, so to speak, why not just stop and pray and see what God might do on your behalf? And so in the, in the defense of these Israelites, they finally decided, after 400 years of oppression, to cry out to God. And what did God do? He responded. Meanwhile, back in Midian, we see in verse 1, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb is synonymous with Mount Sinai. So whenever you, you're going to see Horeb all throughout the Old Testament, there's actually two perspectives on it. Either Horeb is a mountain range and Mount Sinai is the pinnacle of that as a mountain uh, or they're the same thing. We don't know. In fact, people have trouble even finding where Mount Sinai is today. But I think the significance of this verse is that in a short while, what God is going to do is in this very mountain where God is right here meeting with Moses, he's going to bring this whole nation back and he's going to introduce himself to them. He's going to introduce himself in a relationship through the Ten Commandments through the law. And then in verse 2 and the ensuing verses, God breaks 400 years of silence and starts talking to Israel, firstly by talking to Moses. Verse 2, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the brush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. 
All right, so this is not someone that set a fire, and this is not arson in the middle of the desert, right? Uh, this is not a brush fire. Uh, it's the angel of the Lord. Whenever you see that word, you'll see it several times in the Old Testament. This is, uh, this is an appearance of, of God. The angel of the Lord was not just a normal angel of all the, the few appearances of angels in the Bible. The angel of the Lord wasn't a random angel. The, the angel of the Lord is unique and distinct. Uh, we see him appearing throughout the Old Testament. Genesis 16, uh, the angel of the Lord appears to Hagar to rescue her and her unborn son, Ishmael from, from death in the wilderness. Genesis 22, Abraham is told to go and to sacrifice his son Isaac. And as he's about to take a knife and sacrifice his son, the angel of the Lord calls out and says, Abraham, and he uh, prevents him from doing that and also provides a ram that uh, that ram might be used for that sacrifice. Genesis 22, a prophet named Balaam uh, tries to curse the nation of Israel, and the angel of the Lord actually comes to Balaam. This is the whole story with the talking donkey and all that. And the angel of the Lord comes with a sword drawn in opposition to what Balaam is about to do so that he might protect Israel from the curse that might come from his lips. And so what this, what's going on in verse 2, this is a theophany. This is an appearance of God. Some would argue this is pre-incarnate Jesus Christ right on the spot talking to Moses. There's a lot of different interpretations, obviously. But I think what we should take from this is that, the, I mean, this is God showing up, calling Moses into whatever God is going to show him that comes after that. Here's my question. Have you ever experienced this? Not, not the theophany. Anybody ever experienced a theophany? That'd be cool, right? Well, it would freak you out, honestly. Have you ever felt like God was calling you into something and you had an opportunity to respond? You just don't know what he's asking you to respond to? I mean, anybody, any of you felt like that? You just know, I just know God is asking me to do something. I don't know what quite it might be, but I know he's doing something. I think God does that. I remember when I was a cadet at West Point, that's where I came into faith, and immediately I felt something, just not, you know, obviously I was a new Christian, I was reading my Bible, I was learning how to pray, I was learning how to do devotions, I was learning how to share my faith, those are the things that I learned as a young person growing as a follower of Jesus right there at West Point. But one of the things I felt is like, you know what, I think I'm supposed to be like leading in this Christian thing a little bit. And that happened very early off. And then as uh, the thoughts of planning a church came about, I mean, I, I can't, I didn't hear a voice of God you know, I, I didn't see God writing his name and writing my name or anything on a, on a paper. It wasn't that, that visible. I didn't hear. No, it's, I mean, it's, it was undiscernible, but I knew God was calling me to plant a church. And so here's the, here's the thing about God summoning you to, to something, just wanting you to do something. You know you're supposed to do it. Uh, in the moment that you know that you're supposed to do something God is calling you to do, you also have this moment where you become insecure. Like, what? Like, do, Lord, do you know who I am? Do you know a little bit about what I've done? Do you know how much I do and don't know about myself? Don't we have those kind of insecurities about ourselves when God calls us to something? I think Moses is experiencing some of that. At least he's going to experience a lot of that in, verse, in chapters 3 and 4. But I think here's a word for all of us that, that feel called to something and then we become insecure about it. Moses, in particular, needs to realize that the authority of his calling is not in who he is. It's in the one who's calling him. And that's the same thing for us. Look at verse 3. And Moses said, I'll turn aside to see this great sight while the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you stand are, uh, which you are standing is holy ground. And so here's what, what Moses is, is hearing from God. Moses, all right, here's a spiritual battleground, almost like the, the, the battlegrounds that we have here scattered across our country. In fact, you're in the presence of Almighty God, so take those sandals off. This is a sacred space, and this holy moment is going to lead you to your calling. I'm going to start changing you. I think that's what's happening here 
in, uh, in chapter 3. And then we read in verse 6, and he said, this is God, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Uh, I don't think Moses had ever heard these words before. Uh, now, a sermon for another day would be, how in the world does Moses even know his heritage? How does he come from being an adopted person, grown up in uh, the lifestyle as a, a son of Egypt, get into touch with his Hebrew heritage such that he would even understand these words? I'm the God of your father. You know, how, how does he know that? Different sermon for another day. But I think what's happening here is uh, equivalent to Isaiah 6, you know, where Isaiah sees this glorious picture of the Lord, high and lifted up, his train filling the temple. And what did I, Isaiah do? He said, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I'm, you, you're sending me to a people who are as dirty as I am. And so Moses does the same thing that many of us would do when we come into God's like, pure presence. Look at, look at what it says. It says he hid his face, like, I'm afraid of you, God. So verse 7, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out, up out of the land to a good and broad place, a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. I think what's happening here in these verses is equivalent to what C.S. Lewis says in the Chronicles of Narnia. Aslan is on the move. I mean, God is, is at work, or at least he's about to be. We see him in all the things that he's done in the background. God is saying, I've seen their oppression. I've heard the cries of their mouths saying that they can't take any more. We don't know why it takes God 400 years to finally hear Israel calling out. They had to have cried out before then. But in the sovereignty of God and the providence of the, the wisdom of, of how he decides to move, he, at 400 years of oppression, decides to hear their cries and he responds. And oh, by the way, perhaps it took 40 years of Moses being in the wilderness and forgot to use him that he decides to respond. But here's the thing behind the scenes again that I think is, is happening here. Can you imagine what Moses is thinking in this moment, given who he is and all the stuff that, that he had been through? I think Moses is probably thinking, oh, all right, God, so you do remember why I'm here in the wilderness in the first place. Remember when I accidentally tried to kill that guy and I actually did kill him and I ran, I flee Egypt and now I'm out here in the wilderness shepherding all this sheep, stepping in poop and all that. I mean, thanks for letting me know what you're going to do. That's going to be awesome. I look forward to seeing it 100 miles away in Midian. I think Moses is having those kinds of feelings. And for sure, Moses has no idea of what um, God is going to pop in on him in verse 10, because God is going to uh, increase the level of commitment, the level of sacrifice. In fact, God has already brought Moses through this, this humiliating circumstance of 40 years of shepherding following being a son of Egypt. But now what's going to happen is God is going to teach Moses that he needs to, not just humility, he needs dependence and obedience. And so in verse 10 we read, Come and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Emphasis on the word you. You see that word? God is telling Moses, I mean, you're going to do this. And this is like one of those, wait, what moments? I mean, like Moses like, come on, God. I've, I've been this route before. I've... I've I've, I've tried to do this, and oh, by the way, I'm in the wilderness because what I tried to do, did, I tried to do failed. And in fact, I mean, I, I can't do this. You've got to be kidding. You've got to find somebody else to do that. And so in verse 11, we start to see a lot of insecurity coming out in Moses. But Moses said to God, verse 11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? You ever asked that question? of God, of someone else in authority over you? Have you ever asked it of yourself? I think we all ask that question at some point or another. God tells us that he wants us to be involved in X, Y, Z. He 
somehow makes you aware that he wants you to do something and you start second-guessing yourself. Immediately think of your past, you think of all your insecurities, you think of the things that you don't know that would be required for the thing that he may be asking you to do. And we say those words, I mean, who am I to, to do what you're calling me to do? There's no way I can do that. But here's what I think the text directs us. I think it's directing us, that's the wrong question to ask. That's the wrong question for Moses to ask, and it's the wrong question for us to ask. The better question to ask is, who are you, God? And we find out that in verse 12. He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you've brought the people of Egypt, brought the people out of Egypt, you shall, you shall serve God on this mountain. And so God is actually helping Moses. He's like, all right, Moses, I know you're insecure. I'm going to help you out. I'm going to tell you some of the things that are going to happen before you even take a step to do them. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be near you. And in fact, this very place where you stand in the future, I'm going to bring you and the nation of Israel back here to worship me. He's like, so you can't do that, right? I mean, that's out of your, out of your league. And so if I'm telling you I'm going to do that, I'm actually going to do it. With you, that's, I mean, you can't do that. But with me, all things are possible. And really, in the rest of our text, the rest of chapter 3, all the way through chapter 4, is Moses having this very unique dialogue with God. In other words, Moses is going to start complaining. He's like, oh, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do that. What if? But that. Uh-uh. Verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say? This is Moses' way of saying, all right, Lord, it's been 40 years, almost a half a generation. So probably they're not even going to remember me. But here's the thing. They might not even remember you. Think about all the polytheism. Think about the paganism of worship in Egypt that Israel is submitting to. How, how are they going to know who you are just because I say your name? In fact, how are they even going to know your name? And then God tells him what his name is in verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is the name Yahweh. It's the formal name of God. In fact, it's a name that's so holy and revered that Jews today, even uh, you know, in, in our culture, don't say that name because they fear that they might take the Lord's name in vain from the, from the commandments, uh, the Ten Commandments in, in chapter 20 of, of Exodus. And so God continues to tell Moses what his name is in verse 15. God also said to Moses, say to this people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is, thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And so God basically tells him, all right, Moses, so if they don't remember me, they will have at least heard the, the tradition. They will have heard the story of who I am. I am the, the God of their fathers, of the patriarchs, of the elders. The, the, the current elders in Israel will know at least a little bit about that. And of course, this, this God naming himself is, is one of the, the most important parts of scripture. It's, it's God revealing his character to us. Uh, I wish I could spend more time there, but there's something beneath this that I think is worthy of us looking at because it lends to this idea of redemption. Embedded in these words of Moses, of what Moses was supposed to say, of telling the, the nation of Israel, this is God and this is what he's come to do, there's something that God is actually telling Moses to do. In a sense, God is saying this, all right, Moses, before you deliver the people, before you show them my strength and glory, I'm going to ask you to do the hardest thing that you've ever done up to this point. I'm going to ask you to face your past. You're going to have to go back to Egypt, face your past. You're going to have to face your own people who rejected you. You're going to have to face the Egyptians who actually want to kill you. And I think this is where God calls Moses not just to be humble, but also to be dependent. Have you all ever faced your past? Have you had a moment that you were forced to, to go back and not to relive it, but just like make account for all the things that you have done? Good, bad, ugly. I remember when I was, we first thought about planning a church. We're in North Carolina, my sending church, uh, Manor Church in North Carolina, and there was a global impact celebration 
where they, a missions conference, all right? And so they brought in all these missionaries from around the world, and we were uh, learning about what they do and how we could partner with them. And they brought in two church planters. First time I'd ever heard the word church and planting together, but I know that I know that I know God in that moment was calling me to do that. And I was like, it was like, but wait, what kind of moments for me? And so as we're working, this, you know, it took 10 years to work this out, but in this moment right here, one, uh, one of the things that I remember telling God, all right, so Lord, I'm going to surrender to this church planting thing, but uh, the one place I never considered going to plant a church was my own actual hometown, Durham, North Carolina. You know why? Because of my past was there. I mean, too many people knew me. They knew where I lived. They knew what I had done. I had friends and family that just like knew Jeff beyond surface Jeff. I had girlfriends. I had good, bad, and ugly stuff happening in my past, just like all of you out there. So I remember, you know, being called to plant a church, and I'm thinking these words, all right, Lord, I'm uncle, I'm going to surrender. I know I, I'm supposed to do this. I'll serve you for wherever. But please, Lord, please don't send me back to Durham, North Carolina, because it would just be hard there. Because why? Because if you face your past, it's going to be a little bit of humiliation. And I, I, honestly, it worked out for me, right? I'm pla I, did plan I didn't plant a church in Durham. I planted it in Alexandria, Virginia. Y'all don't know everything you need to know about me. Um, but how, how many of you realize you can't completely really escape your past? Your past is going to find you out, regardless of where you are. And I think that's the point. That's the point for Moses. That is the point for us in our redemption. In the wilderness, you learn three things. What are they? Humility, dependence, and obedience. And here's what God sent Moses to, to the wilderness for. He, he sent him there as a nobody. He basically had a new life. He was shepherding sheep, raising a family, living in obscurity. God had already humiliated this dude. And then all of a sudden, God decides... It's time, it's time for another lesson to be tagged on, not just humiliation. I'm going to make sure that you know you need to be dependent on me. Not on, not on your own strength and all those things that you did while you were son of Egypt. You need to de be dependent on me so that I can depend on you to free these people from, from slavery. I want you to go back, Moses, and face your past. Verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of the Egyptians to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey, and they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And so Moses had to face his past by first going to the people and speaking to the elders of whom they very likely were going to reject them because they had rejected him 40 years ago. But also he had to go and present himself to a nation that knew him as a felon. He had killed someone and they would have remembered that. I think in many ways, the thorn in all of our flesh is this idea of facing our past. It's where our weakness is, isn't it? It's, it's where there are, obvious, there are obvious blemishes to our character. It's where we've been blatantly wrong in our, in, our, in our doing of things. And what we're seeing here is that God intends to use this moment to show where the real power lies. Not, uh, I mean, he's going to do that in Moses' life. Moses, it doesn't require your strength. I'm going to be the strength that's needed to to deliver these people. And that was the case with, with Moses. So in verse 19, we learned that this journey is not just going to be instantaneously, uh, instantaneously is that a word? Instantly uh, successful. Verse 19, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled to a mighty hand. That word compelled stands out to me. And what it's saying is, you know, Moses knew, all right, I'm strong, I'm smart, I've got words, uh, I can, you know, I used to be a prince of Egypt. I can go and do this thing. I feel God telling me to do something. I'm going to go do it. But what God is telling him here, all right, Moses, it takes a mighty hand, and your hands aren't mighty enough. And he says, in fact, it's going to take me 
uh, causing Pharaoh to rise up, and, and he's going to go against your words that I'm giving you to let my people go, and he's going to make life harder, and that's going to open up the opportunity for God, of course, to, to send a wrath on the nation of, of Egypt that's never been seen. One commentator says about the, the, the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt, he says it's the highest point of the expression of the power of God in all the Old Testament, and God hardens Pharaoh's heart to bring this about. But what he's doing uh, above all that is he's displaying his glory. And so what Moses learns uh, through what God is going to do, through this compulsion that God is going to enact through Pharaoh, is that deliverance isn't going to become because Moses is smart or he's gifted or he has any physical strength. Deliverance comes because God uses humble, obedient, and uh, dependent people. All right, so as we cross over to chapter 4, I'm not going to read a bunch of these verses. I'm going to paraphrase much of it, and then I'll give you a couple summary points at the end. But what we're going to see is much of the same. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, just several chapters in this beginning story of Moses where we see uh, a lot of his in- insecurity and we see a whole bunch of hesitation. And it, it, can, it continues in verse 1. Then Moses answered, but behold, that they will not, but behold, they will not believe me Listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord didn't appear to you. And I think if we play this out, this kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if you stand in Moses' shoes, it's been 40 years since he's been in Egypt. And he's thinking, all right, so Lord, these are my people. They're in slavery in Egypt. And very likely when they see me coming, they're going to remember that I did, I had some wrongdoing. I'm actually a felon. And then when I open my mouth and tell them, all right, by the way, I, I saw God it was a pretty cool sight. I saw him in a burning bush. They're going to look at me cross-eyed and think that something is wrong with me. And so Moses, Moses is, is continually second-guessing and saying, Lord, they're not going to believe me. And so what God does in verses 2 through 9 is God gives Moses ahead of time three examples of miracles that he's going to do for, uh, that, going, that authenticate that God is actually sending Moses to, to exact the power that he needs to let God's people go. And so in, in verses 2 through 5, he tells Moses, all right, Moses, you got a staff. You've been using it for 40 years to shepherd sheep. I want you to throw that staff down. It's going to turn into a snake. If you want to laugh in the Bible, read verse 2 or 3. It says, when God turned that staff into a snake, I'm assuming it was like this huge staff long snake, right? Long. Um, Moses ran. I like I like. Moses must be a black man, because I would have done the same thing, right? I don't mess with snakes. All right. And so God assuages him. He says, all right, Moses, come on. Gain some courage. Grab it by the tail. And when he grabs it by the tail, he picks it back up. And it was funny when they came. He picks it back up, and it becomes a staff again. And really, God is like, he's trying to encourage Moses. Like, Moses... You can't do this, and other people can't replicate it either, and so this is going to show my power, but if they don't believe that, I've got another one for you. And then he tells them in verse 6 through 8, he says, Moses, put your hand in your coat. When you bring it back out, it's going to be leprous, and of course, leprosy in this time and age was incurable. It was uh, a plight, a a, a skin disease for which you would have been kicked out of uh, any culture, any any community that you were in, so it was that bad. And so they would see this knowing... (gasps) Who could do this but, but God, but some, someone up above? And then, of course, put your hand back in your coat, and I'm going to reverse it. And if they won't believe that, I got one more for you. I want you to go, take water out of the Nile, pour it out on the ground. It's going to become blood, and that way they will have no way to get any kind of uh, nutrients uh, out of the Nile for, for, their, for their thirst. And so God gives them three miracles to authenticate that what he's doing is actually coming from God. And so have you, have you been keeping up? Y'all, y'all tracking? This is what's going on. God has spoken clearly to Moses. He's called Moses. He's equipped Moses. God has said that he'd be with Moses. He's given words to Moses to speak the miracles that authenticate God's power, not Moses' power. And then what happens? Moses comes up with another excuse in verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. All right. From what you know about the Bible, is that true? Come on, take it. Commit. Commit. Yes. No. 
Right. All right. So here's one example. Scripture interprets Scripture. And so if you would read just the Old Testament, you might think, all right, Moses is telling the truth. He has a stammering problem. He, he just has a courage problem, something like that. Actually, this is a flat-out lie. See, the Old Testament uh, foreshadows the New. The New Testament reveals the Old. And what we read about, about Moses in this incident, Acts 7.22, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his what? Words and his, his deeds. Moses wasn't writing no words down back then, right? This is oral, or an oral culture. He was talking. Moses was able to speak quite eloquently. So he's lying. So what's, what's going on with Moses? This is 40-year-old Moses. This is 80-year-old Moses, who 40 years ago took a step of, of bravery in his own strength, knowing that God had called him to do something. He's like, you know what? I'm going to do what God has called me to do. And it failed. And he got punished. For, he got beat down for it. And so he's like, all right, I ain't doing that anymore. Moses took himself out of the game. And he's uh, a humble, humiliated shepherd, you know, doing what shepherds do with the staff out in the middle of the desert. He has relegated his, his gifting, the thing that God made him to be and do, and said, you know what? I tried to do it, and it didn't work, so I'm not going to do it anymore. Don't we do that? Don't we sometimes have things that, you know, I, I know God is calling me to this. We take a step forward. We might, I mean, we might be scared about it, but we uh, we, we get the courage to do it. We start doing it, and perhaps something goes wrong. Perhaps a leader tells you, uh, you're, well, you're not doing it right. Or perhaps they even rebuke you. Or maybe you just flat out fail. And a lot of times, we know we're good at it. We know there's a gifting. Perhaps you just need a little bit more training. We'll take ourselves completely out of the game, won't we? That's what's going on with Moses. And what Moses, is, I think, has done is he's taken his humility to an extreme. You know, it's good to be humble, but when your humility actually um, takes away from the very thing that God might be calling you to, then, you've, then you've, you've hurt the kingdom of God by not giving us your gift more than you have by just um, protecting yourself. And we do that perhaps a lot in our own ways. And so obviously the takeaway is um, don't dismiss the gifts that God gives you. And if you have a point of failure, it doesn't mean that God wants you to just step back and, and sit on the bench. He may be encouraging you uh, to, to get more training or to get more courage, but don't substitute being humble and meek and mild for sacrificing the very thing for which God might be calling you to do. Sometimes we're supposed to face the humility and then uh, rise up to do that very thing God is calling us to do. Let's speed up. Verse 11. And the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth, who has made him mute, who has made him deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. And so God is encouraging Moses to get back in the game, Moses. But Moses actually still wants out. Verse 13. But he said, to, but he said, uh, Moses said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Isn't there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. And so in a sense, God raises up Moses' brother Aaron uh, to come alongside Moses and be his mouthpiece. And I think God does it out of frustration because Moses is just continuing to be uh, kind of stiff arm, stiff mouth. I think God is a stiff mouth. God is just trying to get the mission going. And I mean, if I can't convince Moses to do this, I got to find some other way to do it. And he finds Aaron. But I think one of the things that, that backfires on Moses is, is that his brother Aaron actually ends up being a kind of a pain in his side throughout the whole time of his ministry. Think uh, Mount Sinai. Moses is up getting the Ten Commandments. What's Aaron doing? He's having a party and they're going to build a golden calf. It's like, ah, what is this? How did, how did this get here? And so we'll finish up in this, this last part, verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see, what, uh, to see if they are alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And so here is a, a, a little bit of forward progress. Moses has actually gone to his, his father-in-law. 
He's asked for his blessing to take his family and go back to Egypt. But do you notice that Moses is still struggling? He can't even tell the complete truth with his father-in-law. Did God say, go back to Egypt and see if your brothers in Egypt are still alive? That's not what God said. God said, go meet with Pharaoh, tell him to let my people go, and then I'm going to do some miracles through you. And he doesn't even tell Jethro what's the complete truth there. And so we see that Moses is still struggling. But I think one of the last takeaways in our text uh, is our own tendency to, to scrutinize. You know, I've been beating Moses up a little bit, and I admit that, but, I mean, I'm preaching a sermon, right? But here's the thing. I could point out a lot of weaknesses in Moses' life. Uh, it's easy to scrutinize him. But I think the, the opportunity we're being given here is the opportunity to, to have a mirror put up in front of us. You know, sometimes we'll say out loud, Lord, how in the world could you use somebody like that? I mean, this job is going to take someone way more special, way more unique, way more gifted than that. And we can easily do that with Moses, especially the way that he's second guessing God. God's actually called him and he keeps second guessing it. And that's one of the reasons why I love reading the Bible, right? Because you read the Bible and you read, you meet real people with real lives um, in the moments that they are having. And then in this moment, I think the Bible is challenging, challenging us to look at the mirror of our lives. And we get to look at Moses and say, you know what? I see myself in Moses. So can you see yourself in this text? Can you see yourself in this text, how Moses is struggling with insecurity, but how you might struggle with insecurity? How many times have you felt led of the Lord to lead something or do something, and then you doubted it? There's a few people here that I know should be leading community groups. There's a few of you all who have teaching gifts that should be teaching in some way in our church, kids' ministry and community groups and, and, and otherwise, perhaps even up here in the pulpit. And a lot of times we just count ourselves out. We say, you know what, I've done that and it didn't go so well. Uh, I'm just not good at handling, handling with kids. I just don't want to talk to kids. I just don't want to do that. I mean, or, or we think about our past. Look what I've done. I can't overcome this or that. And we take ourselves out of the game. God can't use me. I've got to do what I want to do. I think this text shows us that we're, we're cut from similar cloth as Moses. And so let me give you a summary of what happens as we close this text out. Verse 19, God calls Moses to go to Egypt, and he does go. Verse 20, Moses preps his family for departure. Verse 21 through 23, God tells him what's going to happen. You're going to go to Egypt. You're going to stand before Pharaoh. You're going to tell him my words, let my people go. And ultimately, you're going to tell Pharaoh that I'm going to kill all the unborn. I'm going to kill all the firstborn sons. So God prophesies that through Moses ahead of time. And in fact, he tells him all the things that he's going to, to do before that. Now, let's wrap this up. I've been saying that God sent Moses in the wilderness to learn three things. What are those three things? Humility, dependence, and obedience. I've talked about humility. I've talked about dependence. Here's the last one. These last few verses are kind of obscure. We don't actually know what's going on, but I'm going to take my best guess. You know, God called his people through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to follow them. We see him enact a covenant with them. Genesis 12 is where God made a covenant with Abraham that he would um, make him great, make his uh, descendants as numerous as the sand on the shore, as many as the stars in the sky, and that through him all the nations will be blessed. And so he has Isaac has Jacob. Uh, that covenant was ratified in Genesis 15. We see the sign of the covenant giving in Genesis 17. What's the sign of that covenant? Male circumcision. Why did God create that as a sign of the covenant? The reason why is because the Messiah would come from the loins of Abraham. And as a sign of obedience, the Hebrews circumcised every boy in the family as a sign of connection to Abraham's covenant. But guess what? Moses didn't do that. And so in the latter half of chapter 4, beginning of verse 24, we see that Moses' wife, Zipporah, steps in and actually takes charge. Verse 24 through 26, Zipporah circumcises her sons and probably the other men of the household as well. She throws the foreskin at Moses' feet, who, by the way, the Lord is about to kill him because he's been disobedient. And what Zipporah ends up doing is 
some scholars say she's rebuking her son by doing this because Moses should have done it. Why should he have done it? Because he should have done it because he knew to do it. It was part of the covenant that, that he was in. But I think in, in this, Moses is still showing us he's wrestling with these three things. He's, he's been in the wilderness this whole time, and he's still wrestling with humility, dependence, and obedience. And so it ends like this. He meets up with Aaron in verse 37. Moses and Aaron speak with the Hebrew elders in verse 29 through 30. The people believe. Actually, he goes to Egypt, talks to the elders, and they believe his story. They also actually believe that God has heard their cry. And how do we know that? They decide to bow their heads and they worship. All right, last words. Why is this text here? I think in the grand scheme, God is using this insecure leader to deliver a nation out of bondage in Egypt. Moses needs to be taken to the wilderness to be taught what it means to be humble, dependent, and obedient. And here's how that translates into our lives. God wants us to deliver us from the the strongholds, the the sin uh, that we have given ourselves to. And the practicality of it is it's not beneath God to give us a wilderness experience to bring that about. I mean, that's the practical nature of this this text. But here's the overarching uh, perspective of the text. God wants you to be aware that you need a redeemer. Moses needs a redeemer to get himself out of the wilderness. In fact, God gives Moses a wilderness experience so that he would come to a point where he could also go to Egypt and redeem a people that are enslaved. That's what we see what's happening. And when we realize that we need a redeemer, I mean, any kind of redemption needs a redeemer. And so for all the ways that we ourselves lack humility, for all the ways that we shirk being dependent on God and all the ways that we refuse to be obedient, God has sent a redeemer in Jesus who experienced his own wilderness. You know, Moses in this wilderness, he goes unwillingly. Jesus is led there by the Spirit, and he goes willingly. He not only goes willingly, he goes triumphantly. He'll go in victoriously, he'll come out victoriously, and he will rise to go on a cross, and he'll die in our place and for our sin. And he does that so that he might redeem us from those sins that enslave us. And so here's the thing. If you're a Christian, you've been redeemed. What we're going to learn in the, starting next week from, the, from the, the rest of their journey out of Egypt into the wilderness is although God sometimes delivers us from the sins of our lives, sometimes it takes a little bit more oomph to deliver the sin out of us. One of my friends wrote a song. He says, Lord, you've taken me out of Egypt. Can you please just take Egypt out of me? That's what's going on in our text from, the day, from, uh, from here on out. All right, let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to gather as your church. We're grateful for the words of Scripture, that we see real people with real lives in real circumstances. In this case, we see Moses. Moses, who uh, grows up to be a, a, a huge figure in the Bible, but in this moment, he lacks humility, he lacks dependence on God, and he lacks obedience. And God, who are we to say that we're anything above that? So for all the ways that we are like Moses, make, it, make us aware of it, and then give us courage to, um, to, to know that there is a Redeemer who gave his life for us. He gave it on the cross to um, save us from all those things that enslave us. And his name is Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. And amen.